The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. study. Thank you all so much for being here. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and I think you're going to enjoy this morning's lesson. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've done John chapter 1, which was an introduction to who is Jesus Christ. And I gave you eight different points of who he is, and uh, if you missed any of those, you can go back and listen to them online. Uh, we then looked at the first witness, who was John the Baptist. We talked about why he was so significant. And then we looked at the first disciples, and I introduced you to John, our author. We looked at Andrew, his brother Peter, and then last week we also looked at Philip and Nathaniel. This morning we're looking at the first miracle, and the miracle is an introduction to what we're going to get over a series of weeks because John, our writer, picks seven miracles from the ministry of Christ to prove he is God. And I'm going to show you why each of them demonstrate a different aspect of who God is, therefore who Jesus Christ is. But before we get to that, we have to put it in the context of how culture has dealt with the miracles of Christ uh, for at least the last 300 years uh, in a secular sense. Great little quote from Mark Twain. God created man in his own image and man being a gentleman returned the favor. Twain's point was... So much of the secular world views God through a lens of being purely mortal. So they look at Christ and they say he was just a man, he was not God. After his death, people attributed aspects to him that uh, were uh, exaggerations and fabrications, and the attack on Christ goes back to the 18th century. Uh, it's historically called the historical Jesus movement. And it was essentially a paradigm that said, we reject all things supernatural and we're going to limit Jesus down to just his humanity. So it's an alleged scholarship movement, but even though it's not so much in universities, it's more historical secular movement. It goes back to people like Thomas Jefferson, who literally took an exacto knife and his Bible and cut out everything that was a miracle and threw it away and taped to a piece of paper the historical human things about Christ, such as the Sermon on the Mount, but cutting out anything that was miraculous. So Thomas Jefferson's Bible was really, really short. Uh, in today's 21st century, we've got the Jesus Seminar. We've got refutations of that by scholars included in T. Wright. We've got a just huge, huge debates where people show up and basically say, I refuse to believe in the miracles of Jesus. Uh, I just want to know what his humanity was about. They're welcome to do that, but when you do that with Christ, you're ignoring the evidence that is in Scripture to prove he was more than just 100% human. So as we go through these uh, signs, we're going to stop and we're going to talk about them and what they mean and the evidence of them, and we're going to scratch the skeptic's itch to say, could that really happen? And I'm going to do that this morning as well. But we're going to look at this issue of did the biblical miracles really happen? I'm going to work through each of them in time. And we're starting this week in John chapter 2 with the scene which is known historically as the wedding feast of Cana. And uh, the wedding feast of Cana we get in verse chapter 1, uh, sorry, at verse 1 of chapter 2. 
that says on the third day, that's a reference to the, uh, the chronology that we get starting in chapter 1, uh, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Let me break this down a little bit for you. Cana of Galilee. Most of us have heard of that because the wedding feast at Cana is even kind of popular in, in uh, modern uh, secular worlds because of the art that exists on this. Uh, but if you go, look at a biblical map, they'll always tell you where Cana is. It's interesting because there's not uniformity and agreement scholarly on where this is. It's described as north of Nazareth. It's described as west of Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee. And that's generally right. And we know that from the Jewish historical records in the first century, the Roman historical records in the first century. But I think where if you go on a tour trip today to where they tell you is Cana, it's not the right place. We know from the early first century historians what it was like topographically, geographically, and we know certain things about it. And I think it is in a place that now is just archaeological ruins. There's no city there. It's called Corbert Cana. Uh, it's up on a rise. That's looking at it from the, kind of down on the floor looking up. And at the time of Christ, that would have been covered with houses and little small businesses. If you go up on top of that ridge and look down, you can see the ruins of the building blocks. Uh, and you can see it's kind of elevated several hundred feet. Uh, you can actually see that uh, the, the, the footprint... The foundation of the houses are still there. You can go there and count the houses and see what the houses looked like. Uh, and the houses actually went underground. They had underground storage. They had some underground tunnels. And we know from the underground tunnels they were places of worship after the first century because there's uh, references to Jesus Christ and their worship references down in those little tunnels underneath this little city. If you go to Galilee today... They will take you to this city, which is six miles away. This city, the archaeological record indicates, did not exist in the first century. So it's funny to me that they call this Cana, and they'll even take you to this place, which is called the Wedding Church, and tell you that this is where Christ did his miracle at the wedding. The church was built in the early 20th century. So uh, I'm really confident this is not where the miracle took place. If you're ever in Galilee, save your money. Go somewhere else on this day of your trip. Uh, the city where they tell you is Cain is really not if. They'll take you to the archaeological ruins. That's a great trip, but the place they tell you is Cain is not really it. All right, back to our story. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciple were invited to the wedding as well. John gives us a Reader's Digest version of this miracle. So we don't know whose wedding it was. We don't know who the bride is. We don't know who the groom is. But we know Mary takes a very aggressive leadership position that leads most scholars to conclude that this is a relative or a really, really close friend, like best friend next door that she's basically a godmother to or a godfather to. Uh, I don't think I said be godmother regardless of son or daughter, sorry. Uh, godmother to. Uh, or it could be a first cousin. It's somebody really, really close because she gets real active when they run out of wine. And it could be uh, one of Jesus's uh, half-siblings. Uh, it could be a first cousin. We don't know, but Mary is there. And the fact that Mary's there in a leadership position, Jesus and all of his disciples got invited, uh, implying that it's a very, very close friend of the family. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is just a week into his ministry and his ministry hasn't gone public yet, but clearly the people at the wedding know who he is. 
He's been in Nazareth for the better part of 30 years. They know him as a carpenter. They know him as the son of Mary and Joseph. He was liked enough to not only say Jesus is welcome at the wedding, but all these strange friends that are now following you are welcome to the wedding. So it's a great little life lesson that Jesus was always welcome at a party. Are you? And that may seem like a funny life lesson, but I mention it to Christians because so many times... We think if we do anything religious or really anything in the world, we have to have the demeanor of an undertaker. Uh, and that's not the case. Jesus was always welcome at a party because he was so gregarious. People liked him. They were magnetically drawn to him. And the point for us is if in social environments you want to preach fire and brimstone, you're not going to be very welcome at the parties. Uh, it's it's uh, basically a reflection that Jesus was welcome among sinners because he wasn't offensive. He was warm. He was encouraging. He drew people to him. And it's a great little life lesson for us. Now, let's dig into the situation of why we're here. We get into that in verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour is not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. There's a whole bunch in there. Let me unpack it for you. It starts with the wine. As the grandson of a Baptist preacher, as the son of a Baptist preacher, I have attended other people's sermons so many times I've lost count where Baptist preachers being their anti-alcohol bent have argued this really isn't wine. Don't think Jesus and his mother were drinking wine and they'll actually say it was so diluted down it was the equivalent of grape juice. I'm sorry to the Baptist preachers who believe that. There's no historical evidence of that. Drinking water was actually dangerous to your health because they didn't understand bacteria. They didn't understand uh, boiling water before you drank it. So what they commonly drank was alcohol. Now, it's true it varied in its alcohol content. You wouldn't give a child high alcohol wine, but that's what they drank because it was safer than water. It really was alcoholic wine. Sorry to yeah. any Baptists that think otherwise. The wine ran out. Now, we think of this as, oh, yeah, they were out of wine. They can just run down the specs and get some more. <laughs> That's not the case. There's no specs to get. When they ran out of wine, it was a really, really big deal. Their wedding parties would last multiple days, sometimes a week. They would literally party for two or three or four days to celebrate the wedding. It would culminate in the ceremony after several days of eating and drinking and doing all the, the things they did together. And if the wine ran out, it not only was a cultural indictment on the host, it was a cultural indictment on the groom and the bride because it was like a curse on the wedding. And it was so significant that a member of the wedding party could sue the host for ruining their wedding. That's how significant it was. Now, the reason Mary cares about this is she's not the host, but she knows who Jesus is. And what you've got to understand is that biblically, wine was a symbol of God's blessing, and its absence is a symbol of God's judgment. So Mary realizes when the wine is gone, it's not just an inconvenience. It's, an, it's a, a reflection that God may be judging this couple for something they've done before they're even married. And Mary panics and needs her son, whom she knows is the Messiah, to do something about it. 
You've also got to realize that in Jewish tradition, wine was a symbol of joy. If the wine runs out, the joy runs out, it's no longer a party, everybody's got to go home, and the wedding hasn't even taken place yet. They basically did their reception on the front end, not the back end. Once the wedding ceremony took place, it was essentially all over. Time to go home. The husband and wife would then go off and consummate the wedding. But the Hebrew proverb that existed back then that still exists today is no joy without wine, or there is no joy without wine. So Mary knows this. Now, let me pause for just a second and flash back and say, remember last week, Nathaniel. Jesus knows his thoughts when he's sitting underneath the fig tree having his Bible study and devotional. If Jesus knows Nathaniel's thoughts, don't you think he knows his own mother's thoughts and his brother's and half-brother and half-sister's thoughts? Of course he does. So Mary says they don't have any wine. What John doesn't pick up because John can't read her mind is what she's thinking. And what she's thinking is, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You can solve this problem. Now let me pause for just a second and say, why would Mary think this? The reason Mary thinks this uh, is, number one, she realizes that an overabundance of wine the Jews knew for centuries would signify the Messiah. In the mind of the Jews of that day, one thing that would signify the coming of the presence of the Messiah is, we're going to have a whole bunch of wine. Mary and everybody else in that culture didn't understand how. Is he bringing it? Is he miraculously going to make it? She, she didn't know. But in their mind for centuries, going back to this passage in Amos, there was a recognition the Messiah would have lots of wine. Amos chapter 9, I've got up on the screen, says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. In other words, there's so much uh, produce it, it, it eclipses the planting. When the mountains will drip sweet with wine and all the hills will be resolved. I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And I will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on the land. They will not again be rooted out from the land which I've given them, says the Lord your God. So Amos chapter 9 tied in with them and they said... The Messiah is going to have a lot of wine. Point number two, in their culture, only a sovereign could commandeer the private wine collection of a family. As a neighbor, you might be able to go and ask for wine, but if they don't have any or only have very little, they don't have to give it to you. If you're a sovereign, you can say, I need your wine or my troops need your wine, and they're obligated religiously, culturally, civically to give them the wine. Mary knows who Jesus is. She doesn't understand who Jesus is, but she knows from when the angel talked to her uh, before, the, before the Holy Spirit conceived in her. She knows before uh, the Holy Spirit through an angel talked to Joseph. She knows going from the time the wise men came and proclaimed his Messiah. She knows when they had to flee Herod and go to Egypt. She knows from when he was in the temple at the age of 12. And she knows from raising a teenager who never sinned, never talked back, was incredibly wise, taught her Bible, uh, and then who led the family after Joseph died, she knew her son was the Messiah. Now, in her mind, culturally, the Messiah is going to be the king. 
So when she says they're out of line, she's basically saying, tell them who you are. Exercise your kingship. Because as soon as they realize you're the king, everybody around here will give their wine because you're the king and you're the Messiah and the Messiah is going to have a whole lot of wine. That's why Jesus has the reaction he has. Her mind is, I know my son's the Messiah. I think she says he's going to be the king. He just has to proclaim he's the king. The king can get wine. The Messiah is going to have wine. That solves the problem because there's no specs to run down and get it from uh, the nearest wine store. Jesus says in verse 4, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman, Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, what I've got described there and highlighted in verse 4 is not really what it says. That's kind of a, 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 a loose interpretation that makes sense in English because that's really what he was trying to communicate. The actual Greek phrase describing what he would have said in Hebrew is what to me and thee. That's a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew expression that basically says, "Why are you? what do we have in common? Why are you doing this? The other time this exact phrase exists in Scripture, the Gospel of Luke tells us a demon says to Christ when Christ approaches the man who's inhabited by the demon. The demon says, what to me and to thee? So basically what Christ is saying to Mary is two things. Number one, he doesn't use the intimate expression ma. He says woman. It's the same phrase he uses on the cross when he's about to uh, die. What he says when he says woman sounds a little bit harsh to us, but in our culture we would say ma'am or madam. The point is it's differentiating from this start of his public ministry. He is now singularly devoted to God the Father. She's still his mother, but he's no longer obedient to her as a son because he has a higher calling. It doesn't mean he's disobedient. It means their relationship has changed. So when he refers to her not as mom or mother, but as ma'am or woman, he's recognizing there's a difference in the relationship. And then when she says and is thinking, exercise your kingship, exercise you being the Messiah, he's saying, what to me and thee? He's saying, what you want is not what I want right now. What your desires are are not my desires right now. In other words, on this issue, mom, woman, we don't have anything in common. Because he's there to teach a point. She's there to meet the need of having a party uh, avoid going off the rails. So, it's a great little illustration that on the first day of his public ministry, he reframes his relationship with his mother. He still loved her. He still would have gone to see her. He still would have communicated with her. But the nature of the relationship changed because he's now no longer the oldest child taking care of her and the family in light of the death of Joseph, which culturally every firstborn son would have done if the patriarch died. There is a clear reframing of the relationship at this point. Number two, Jesus' point is that the Messiah's glory will be revealed on God's timetable not any man or woman's timetable. Mary's got a short-term need. She's like, what a perfect time for the Messiah to manifest himself. And Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come. He does not recognize that the hour has come until the last few days of his life. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, my time, my hour has now come. My time has now come. 
Everything until then is building up to that moment with teaching and preaching and the miracles. But he's basically saying to Mary, no, that's not man's timetable. Notice her reaction. This is fascinating. Verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. A number of scholars have pointed to this as the moment of Mary's salvation. The moment when Mary says, he's God. Whatever he says, do it. And they say that's the exact same type of response she gave when the angel appeared to her at conception. It's the same type of response when she would have reacted to Joseph being visited by the angel, as with the Magi who came to Jesus' birth, as with all the things around his birth, as with the time when he was in the temple at the age of 12 or anything else. She now sees he's Messiah. He's now stepping into a public role. She doesn't know what's going to happen, but she basically says, I'm trusting in him. Whatever he says, you do it. So it's reflecting her heart and not only reflecting her heart, but sharing it to everyone else and saying, you follow him. He's the Messiah. Whatever he says, you do it. It's amazing to me that in Protestant churches, Baptist churches included, we are scared to death to teach and preach Mary because of her veneration in the history of the Christian church, the Catholic church. Mary was intended to be honored. She was not intended to be venerated because biblically there is more ink on her in the New Testament than any other woman in the New Testament. Biblically, Old and New Testament, there's more ink on her than any other woman in the entire Bible with one exception, Ruth. Ruth gets more ink, another study for another day, but if Mary gets that much ink, God is intended for us to understand her, to honor her, to learn from her life and her teaching, but it's not to venerate her. And another lesson for another day about what the church has done with Mary and why over the years, I'll get to that later on in the Gospel of John. But the point here is that the Bible calls us to honor her, not venerate her. It's amazing to me in my adult life how few sermons and Bible study lessons I've ever heard on Mary because most people are scared to death they're going to say something wrong or they're going to insult somebody that grew up Catholic or that's still Catholic. And so they just say, I'm just not going to talk about Mary. Uh, we should. Now, i got to transition a little bit. We've got to talk about the supply. We've got to talk about what's going on here. Because in verse 6, Jesus says, or the, uh, John says, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So it's a picture here of stone water jars, not clay. And they're very large. They were probably next to the well. If they were not next to the well, they were next to a door so you could bring it in from the well and pour it into it. They used stone for ritual purification because a clay pot, if contaminated with something that was Jewishly unclean, would have to go through a temple ceremony to make it clean again. So for their ritual cleansing, they would use a stone pot. And it was large enough because they had to ritualistically clean their hands and clean their feet before a meal. And they had to clean everything used to make a meal. All the pots, all the pans, all the utensils. So you needed a whole bunch of these stone things. Uh, Mark chapter 7 gives us some insight on this because Mark chapter 7 talks about the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing 
holding on to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, including washing the cups, the pitchers, and the kettles. That's a reference in Mark 7 to exactly what's going on in John chapter 2. That's why all this water is there. So at the point Jesus is there, some of them would have been full, some of them would have been empty, some of them would have been half full. And we see here, Jesus says, fill the jars with water. Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. It's implied that they poured out whatever was in there or that they were already out, and then they filled them all the way up to the brim. The point is, they are totally full with what Jesus says to do. So there's no room to interpret that a human being added something to the miracle that's about to happen. Jesus has them fill it to the brim so that it's crystal clear this is 100% a miracle of God. Mankind does not add one drop of effort or one drop of water to the miracle. So it's a neat little picture for us because the miracle occurs inside the containers of the law. Understand what Jesus is trying to do here as his very first public miracle. He's coming to a culture that are God's chosen people that have lived for two millennium now, 2,000 years within the confines of Jewish law. But the reason our Bible study a couple of years ago spent two years doing the Scarlet Thread was to teach everybody that all of that just pointed to Jesus Christ. The law is a way of realizing we can't do it on our own. We got to have a savior and you've got to have a blood sacrifice if it's going to cover human sin. And you've got to have all these other things, all of which pointed to Christ. So the law pointed to Christ. The prophecy about the law pointed to Christ. The reason for the law pointed to Christ. Everything about the law was a big arrow saying the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. So for Jesus to do his first miracle inside the containers of the law is a perfect picture that the reason he lived a perfect life. It was not only to show that he was a proper sacrifice for God the Father, it was to show it was within the confines of the law. Because if anybody pointed to the law and said, how do you get to heaven? The answer was fully comply with the law. So Jesus fully complied with every aspect of Jewish law to perfection. There was no criticism ever that even the smallest detail he failed to do it. His first miracle is really an audiovisual picture of his whole life and whole ministry. The miracle takes place inside the containers of the law. Point number two, as I mentioned a minute ago, the jars are filled to the brim to show not one drop of effort was added by man. 100% of it was the work of Jesus and the miracle that he's showing. So then he says in verse 8, Jesus says to them, Now draw out some and take it to the chief servant, and they did. It's interesting here that they've got almost like a sommelier, almost like a, a wine steward who was also in charge of the meal, who was also in charge of organizing all the other servants. So when Jesus says, take it to the head steward, he's taking it to the person who knows wine the best. You don't give it to the groom, you don't give it to the bride, you don't give it to their parents, you don't give it to your most honored guest. He takes it to the person that knows wine because that's their job. They know from one taste where it's from. They know from one taste how good it is. They know from one taste what the alcohol content is. So Jesus, to verify the miracle, 
has it sent to the most uh, learned person. Now notice verse 9 because this is also significant. It says in verse 9, When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the miracle takes place with six huge stone pitchers, 20 to 30 gallons each, filled to the brim, in the blink of an eye become fine wine. The servants are there watching and they see it and they know what's going on. The learned, educated chief steward who knew for hours they're about to run out of wine, who has already inventoried the entire house and the wine supply and knows how much they've got. He knows they're out there in a deep panic. He's probably the one that told Mary. And all of a sudden, servants are bringing him fine wine. He has no clue what's going on. There's an audio-visual picture here for us as well. Many times, the educated and the sophisticated don't understand who Jesus is and what he can do. There's a message here of who gets it. The uneducated, unpolitical, unvocationally blessed servants, blue-collar workers, the, the servants of the party get it. So when Jesus gets the message, it's not the rich, it's not the educated, it's not the politically astute who are invited to the party, it's those who culture would have looked down on, and Jesus said they're the ones who are going to get it first. Now, let me give you some significance of all of this. Because the significance of it is in verse 11, it says, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. Now, first sign, John is saying, this is the first one he did in his entire ministry. For whatever reason, we won't know till we get to heaven, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not cover this miracle. John says this is the first miracle because he's trying to communicate the creator of the universe is who's here. You thought creation was a miracle. You look at the stars, you look at the plants, you look at the mountains and the ocean, you see, wow, how did all that happen? You also look at the water turned into wine and say, wow, how did that happen? If you're the creator of the universe, it's a piece of cake. If you're not the creator of the universe, it's confounding. It's his first sign that he's God because the first sign in Genesis chapter 1 was creation. And it was creation so all the angels... All the created beings could see his majesty. Same thing at the start of his ministry. Just like Genesis chapter 1 starts with creation, John chapter 2, which starts his earthly ministry, starts with creation. It's the reason John is the only one that highlights because he's trying to show he's God. He's not just a man. He is God incarnate. Now notice how the end of this verse ends. It says he displayed his glory... And his disciples believed in him. The display of his glory is taking six clay, or sorry, stone water pots and turning it into the finest wine anybody at that party had ever had. But it says his disciples, that's the six people we've already seen in the book of John, believed in him. The inference is no one else did. There's some great application on this. I'll end with a couple of neat application points. Number one, 
The miracles of the Bible are eyewitness accounts of the supernatural working of God intended to vindicate the message and differentiate God's word from every other religious tradition. Now, we're going to talk as we go deeper into the miracles about how we know they occurred, what we know occurred, but what we know from this point forward is that six lives were irrevocably changed and those were his six disciples. They never leave him until the crucifixion. They are willing to give up jobs. They're willing to give up family. They're willing to give up friends. And the evidence of the supernatural is normal men and women do not do that if they are sane. If they're crazy, they may. So then the question becomes, do we see evidence of sameness or insanity? I'll tackle that later in John. But the point here is, evidence of the supernatural is someone who's willing to change their life to a radical degree, and they are sane. I'll prove to you in a few weeks that they're totally sane. The point here is their eyewitness accounts. And that's why John starts with this miracle of creation from John chapter 2. Life lesson number two, the miracle of turning water to wine signifies the change from ritualistically following Jewish purification law to receiving the much greater blessing of God's gracious gift from his son. Jewish purification law was a ritual just like washing our hands or squirting an antibacterial on it or wearing our mask, or other things we do for hygiene. For them, it was pure hygiene. Jesus comes to give a gift that our brains can't comprehend. He's not here for religious hygiene. He's not here to be our religious bar of soap to make us better and cleaner than somebody else who doesn't know him. He's here to give us gifts, including the gift of salvation, that's farther than our brains can comprehend. Because for them, it was the greatest wine they'd ever had, and they had it at the end of the uh, they had it at the end of the party. Number three, if creating 120 to 180 gallons of the finest wine on earth in the blink of an eye was intended to be a picture of the exceeding greatness of God's grace. Our minds lack the ability to fathom the magnificence of his gift to us. People look at this story and they say there is no way the people at that party drank 120 to 180 gallons of wine, particularly if they've been partying for a couple of days. And the answer is you're exactly right. To those to whom the gift is given, it was a lifetime gift. The husband and wife the family that hosted the party had enough wine to last them for the rest of their lives. 180 gallons. And it's a picture of God's gift intended to last us for the rest of our lives. It's a picture that he starts his gospel with so he doesn't want us to miss. Point number four. Even when God does amazing miracles to manifest his truth and glory, many see yet still don't believe. Notice what I just taught you. The servants knew what happened. Who believes? Only the disciples. The people in the party would have known 
we're running out of wine. They're starting to give us the really diluted stuff. We drank the really, really good stuff. We shut up a couple of days ago. And then all of a sudden at the end, they get the greatest wine they've ever had. And now they go from getting little bitty pours to as much as they can possibly consume. And they're like, where's what happened? This is a miracle. The servants inevitably would have told them. Mary doesn't know to stay quiet. She thinks her son's the Messiah. She would have told them, my son did this. My son's the reason that water got turned to wine. And everybody would have looked at it and goes, yeah, what's the trick, Mary? Where are you hiding the good wine? What's the story, Mary? You know, come on, servants. You guys are liars. Stop the prank on us. Tell her we're not. Right? You can imagine the conversation that would have taken place. No one present believed in the miracle. The only people who believed were John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. They saw and they believed and their lives were never the same. Everybody else saw the miracle, heard of the miracle, drank the miracle, and yet still did not believe. You look today at amazing, miraculous answers to prayer and your life is to the point of just in awe of God. And you share it with people and they seem to think you're crazy. You share with people and they're like, that's good for you. And they just chalk it up to coincidence or good medicine or good finances or your good job or your good friends or whatever the situation may be. To non-believers, they are incapable of seeing the miracle of God. That's why I look historically to Thomas Jefferson, who I really, really admire and like. His theology was upside down, but he's obviously a great leader, a great president. I get it because he did not believe in the miraculous. I look at the Jesus Seminar, the historical Jesus movement, and I get it. They are incapable of seeing the workings of God because they're blinded to the word of God and to the person of God. So as you deal with life and answers to prayers and miracles in your own life, don't be shocked when the rest of the world just doesn't get it. You can live the miracle, explain the miracle, be a living example of the miracle. And your best friends and family, if they're not believers in Jesus Christ, aren't going to get it. And that's just the reality of life in a, in a sinful world. Final verse. Reminder for all of us as believers. James chapter 1-7. The same reminder to the disciples that really enjoyed the incredible wine, the best they'd ever drank in their life. Every good and perfect gift is from above. To the rest of the world that doesn't get the belief, doesn't get the miracle, they'll chalk it up to fortuity or coincidence or something like that. But to the believers, they drank the wine, and the disciples, I guarantee you, thanked Jesus and thanked God for the miracle of the wine they got to experience. It's a great little lesson for us. You think this was good? Come back next week. I got more good stuff for you. Was Jesus a revolutionary? We're going to get through most of chapter 2. I'm not sure we're going to get through all of it, but I'm going to try to get through most of chapter 2, at least up through 25. So next week, John chapter 2, verse 25. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to study this first miracle in Jesus' ministry, this first miracle in the Gospel of John, we pray that you would use it to give us the life lessons of not only recognizing that you are a God of the supernatural, you're a God that answers prayer, you're a God that loves us, to meet the smallest needs, including our thirst, 
but a God who deals with miracles that the rest of the world can't appreciate, can't comprehend, can't understand. And we just pray that you would use us to share with them so that through the moving of the Holy Spirit, they might recognize who you are. They might see your miracles and they might recognize you as their Lord and Savior, just as we've done. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for our class. Thank you for those that have joined us remotely today, things that have joined us here in person. We just pray you give us all strength, safety, and protection uh, through the weather this week until we can come back together next week, either online or in person. We thank you for the opportunity to teach your word. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. Thank you all. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.